And we're going to start down in um, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up, to, came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you not, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I'm just going to pray for Diff and for us. Jesus, please, uh, just, uh, we just pray that you'd help Diff to say everything that you'd have him to say. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 speaks about how uh, let him who speaks speak the very words of God. And I pray that he would do that today and that you'd get done everything that you want to get done today. So uh, make a way in our hearts and uh, change our hearts today. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pete. <coughs> well, good morning from me. Is that a bit loud? It seems really echoey. Can you just turn it down a bit for me? It's uh, number two, I think, or one. Okay, so this morning we continue, although continue is a bit of a weird word because we started it about three months ago and that was the last time we heard about it, but we continue our, our series on Christ-crossing culture. Um, this morning's message is not meant to be in any way a message of condemnation. This is a message that's actually really freeing and should be really freeing for us. But one of the interesting things that happens a lot of the time, is that things that are meant to be freeing for us, when we become obsessed with ourselves and prideful, Satan has a way of turning that from freedom into condemnation straight away. So my prayer is exactly what, what Sonny just prayed, that our hearts would be looking for the freedom that, that Jesus comes and brings to us, and instead of focusing on ourselves, which ultimately will lead to condemnation, to feeling bad about ourselves, to feeling like we're not good enough. Um, like I said, at the start of the, of the year, I preached a message that was introducing this series, uh, which is called Christ Crosses Culture. This, that, that was the first of a, a, a bunch of messages that were topical, um, and really it was just giving a bit of a background. So if you, if you weren't there, uh, there at the time, if you weren't able to hear it, I really encourage you to get online and have a bit of a listen to it, because it just sets a bit of the foundation for the whole thing, particularly it talks about um, what Jesus meant when we were told to be in the world but not of the world. We're living in the world but we're not polluted by and changed by the world. 
The overall idea behind this whole series is to discuss the ways in which Christianity has been affected and changed by culture instead of going out and changing culture. We're actually called to go out and change it, but I think a lot of the time, because we just don't think critically about stuff that we see, because we watch a lot of TV and watch a lot of movies, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that, but unless we engage with that with a biblical mindset, a lot of the time that can come in and affect us, and we don't realise that it's going on. The truth is that we're constantly bombarded by a whole bunch of messages from all over the place, and those messages are often telling us at their core what it is to be human. And God tells us in the Bible what it, what it means to be human and what being human is really all about. And most of the time, the messages that we get from society and from culture contradict that. So it's really important that we're not just taking everything in and taking it for granted and then assuming that that's correct. What I really want to do with this series, which is going to be interspersed all the way through the year, we'll do two or three here and there, is to have a look at certain things that culture is being saying to us and then analyse it biblically from a biblical worldview and see, well, is this really what the Bible says about stuff? Um, before we start, I'd like to read a quote from Lewis, um, C.S. Lewis. There's going to be plenty of C.S. Lewis throughout this series uh, and particularly throughout this sermon and mostly from a book called Mere Christianity. Uh, Mere Christianity is an amazing book. It has been voted by a whole bunch of different people, um, different organisations, Christian organisations, to be the most important book of the last hundred years. Uh, obviously, it comes under the Bible, but the most important Christian book of the last hundred years. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to read it. I have multiple copies if you do want to borrow it, so seriously, you should check it out. But this verse, <coughs> sorry, not this verse, this um, passage from Lewis, I think is really important because um, it, for me, it kind of tells me what coming to church and what reading the Bible is really all about. I think a lot of the time, I talked about discipleship a couple of weeks ago, I think a lot of the time we come to Christ as as a person that thinks, I've got a couple of problems and I want God to sort those problems out for me. Uh, and the truth is that God often has different plans. So, you can read along on the screen with me. <clears throat> Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live at it himself. This morning, some of the things that you hear might feel like they hurt a little bit inside. Um, but, you know, I think that, that that little paragraph there kind of talks about what the point of some of that pain can be, actually. I'm going to talk a little bit later about a concept of short-term pain for long-term gain, and I really, I really want to focus on that. A lot of the time, the gain that we, that we have in heaven, that's obviously, that's very long-term, that's forever, okay? Some short-term pain here builds that up. So, on to what we're talking about today. Today I want to talk about some of the most basic ideals that are shared everywhere, probably all across the world. Uh, obviously there's some countries that have different opinions about this, but in general, um, you hear about this all the time. If you turn on the news at night, you'll hear about this, and it's this idea of rights, or human rights. This is a list of things that you may have heard people talk about when they're invoking their rights to something. The right to life, the right to choice, the right to the pursuit of happiness, the right to bear arms, 
the right to an attorney, the right to children, the right to choose not to have children, the right to marry who we want, the right to privacy, the right to free speech, the right to an education, women's rights, Aboriginal rights, workers' rights, and obviously the list goes on and on and on and on. <coughs> now, you don't have to be a genius when you have a look at that list up there to work out and to realise that some of those things in the list they actually contradict each other. Uh, my right to free speech, if that comes across someone else's right to free speech and we disagree with each other, it becomes a little bit difficult to navigate some of the times. Um, people start to argue. And really, I want to get down to the core of why that is and what this whole idea of rights is. So it would be a good idea, really quickly, I know that not everyone here is going to be into history. I'm not really into history at all, but I do find that looking at where things come from really helps us to understand what's going on with them. And particularly in this regard, finding out where this idea of rights comes from is really important. It goes back much further than this, but I'm going to start around um, 1215. So that's a long time ago. The Magna Carta is a charter of liberties of England founded in 1215. It was forced onto King John by some of his barons to limit the power of the monarchy and to make sure that people were punished according to the law. So essentially you've got a bunch of lords kicking around in England and King John is just punishing people randomly however he sees fit. And they say, we don't want this. We want everybody to have a proper trial according to the law. So they write up the Magna Carta and it was actually forced on the king, but everyone agreed with it. So what are you going to do? Uh, the English Bill of Rights came about uh, in 1689, so a long time later, but was again about limiting sovereign power and ensuring the right to free speech in Parliament, amongst a whole bunch of other things. Now we move over to America, and we have the American Declaration of Independence. Obviously, the American Declaration of Independence happened when, um, when America as a colony split away from England, and they declared their independence, and they wrote up this whole big list of the reasons why they thought they should be able to get away from England because England was doing all this terrible stuff. So they wrote up they wrote up a bunch of stuff about rights, and then they said you are you are not uh, looking after us properly. You're going against our rights, so we want to go away from you essentially. But we have this really interesting first phrase: we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness that came out a couple of years ago. I haven't seen it. It's got Will Smith in it. I don't really like Will Smith, so I kind of avoid those movies, except for way back when he was in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I like that. But the modern stuff where he's really serious, I don't really like it that much. But this idea of the pursuit of happiness is a really problematic idea. That actually wasn't the original wording of this. Jefferson changed that. It used to say the pursuit of property. Um, that was a big deal to them, but Jefferson said, no, I want it to be bigger because what if people don't want property? We want to make it the pursuit of happiness. But the pursuit of happiness is a weird thing because what makes me happy might not make you happy. So once again, we have this weird contradiction thing where if two people are pursuing what makes them happy and they contradict each other, then not everyone's going to be happy. And a lot of the time you can see these are when disputes happen. This is when law, lawful disputes happen. People have these problems um, because they're both trying to be happy, and obviously not both of them can. There's very interesting parts of this phrase which we're going to return to a whole bunch of times. Now, you might be asking why should we look at America, an American document. Um, the truth is, if you turn on the TV, most of what you watch is American anyway, and most movies, or all good movies, sorry if you like Australian movies, but <laughs> all good movies are American, or they're at least not Australian, except for two or three exceptions. Um, and so when it comes to culture and who's deciding culture, you look at the biggest names in music and in uh, 
writing, if you read books, or in movies, or in TV, and it's America. So it does matter what America thinks to us. Unfortunate as that may be, it does. Um, the truth is that we might look at that thing, we might say, that looks pretty good. You know, I know that I look at it and I think that looks pretty good for me. Life, freedom, happiness, that sounds perfect. But now we've progressed into a time, that was written a long time ago, we've progressed into a time now in which we don't think seriously about where these rights come from. You know, that says very clearly that these rights come from the fact that we have a creator God. But the truth is that people now, we forget to choose we, we choose to forget history. We don't want to know about history. We decide that these rights are not bestowed by God, but they're just right. They just are. We don't care where they came from. We're just happy that we've got them. And more than just decide to think that, we believe it unquestioningly, to the point where majority of people would believe in rights and they wouldn't know why. They wouldn't know where it comes from. They just know that it happens. These rights, as it says there, un, are unalienable. It's a bit of a weird word, but it's essentially all it means is that they are inherent to all men at all times. And women, obviously, it goes for both. But where did the writers of this document get that idea from? They got that idea from their belief in God. So it begs the question, I think it's a pretty interesting question, if someone doesn't believe in God, how do they reconcile believing in the unalienable rights which only come from God? Can people that don't believe in God really claim to have these rights? These rights come from God. If I don't believe in God... Do I stop believing in my rights as well? The truth is that society wants all of the gain without any of the pain. They want the gain of having rights without the pain of having to submit to someone in authority that gives them those rights. We will take our right to happiness and we'll forget who gives it to us. These days, everyone, including everyone in here, all of you, myself included, we've all been brainwashed or force-fed or conditioned into believing unquestioningly that we have some rights. Now, so the big question is, well, what do we mean when we talk about rights? I think that what people mean when they talk about rights is something that they simply deserve, something that is due to us, that is ours for the taking and that no one has a good enough reason to take away from us. I think that's what people are talking about when they say rights, something that they just deserve. Hopefully you can see that there's some issues that are going to arise from this. Like I said earlier, it starts to get problematic when our rights start colliding with each other. We hit a junction when our right to life collides with our right to choose or a woman's right to her own body, to make her own decisions about her own body. See, suddenly these rights which we're so happy to espouse as being self-evident truths, they become really tangled. The self-evident nature of them has ceased to be self-evident. Nothing is evident anymore. Everybody's evidence contradicts everybody else's. What we need to realise is that these truths are self-evident when we look through the same glass as the original people that wrote the document were, that is, the looking glass of, a man, of, of men who knew and feared God. However, when you take God out of the equation, we have rights that collide and nobody wins. No one can tell us who should win. Most of the time, the louder voice wins. And in the case mentioned earlier, a woman's voice is louder than an embryo's voice or even 100,000 silent screams, and so the woman wins. And when we're not sure, we can't turn to the truth that the document was founded on. We can't turn to the Bible. People don't want to turn to the Bible. Society can't turn to the Bible. Mostly, they say, because they don't believe it. But more honestly, probably because they don't like it. So we turn to the law instead. And when we turn to the law, here we find society's rights have gone crazy. I found this online. I love it. Working hard to get you all the money you deserve 
This is the money you deserve. This is just an ad for a law firm in the States. And obviously, it's for injury. If you get injured for some reason, then you deserve a whole bunch of money, and we can get you that money. It says just all the different things you know, that you could possibly imagine ever suing anyone for, and then anything else at the end. So it goes auto accidents, construction accidents, wrongful death, injured children, birth injuries, medical malpractice, slip and fall, which is my favourite. If you slip and fall, you deserve money. <laughs> Isn't that good? I love that. I, I like hearing that I deserve money for being clumsy. That's fine with me. People can work very hard to get me all the money that I deserve. But the truth is that rights now have come down to this really weird place where they affect us in much smaller ways. Because the truth is, overwhelmingly, when we look at rights at work or rights in relationships, there's so, only so much that people can do for us. And really, it just comes down to money. That's all, that's all anyone can do, is they can just give us some money. This idea of monetary compensation for perceived wrongdoings against us. If someone does something wrong to us, if we've been hurt, if our boss, our boss has done the wrong thing or if our relationship with someone is falling apart, we have a right to be paid out to make up for that pain. Industries are built upon this concept. If someone does something to you, even accidentally, make sure you get what you deserve out of it. And you can see at the top, I've said a lot of the time, that's really just talking about revenge. I want to make the other person pay. Or at least I don't even care about them, I just want some cash. <laughs> but maybe you've heard about this story that's getting around at the moment. I mean, this is in the news right now. This 13-year-old schoolgirl is being sued by a classmate over a tennis court mishap at one of Queensland's top private schools in the latest blow to Playground Fund. This is just last week. The legal claim over a bruised eye has raised concerns that litigation-crazy parents could threaten the future of school sport by forcing up insurance costs. It may also force parents to take out third-party accident insurance for their children, just like your car. And then several Queensland schools have already banned activities including Tiggy, Red Rover and Cartwheels because of injury fears. Uh, this is, we're going to turn into something like this in a bit, I think. Everything's going to be bubble wrapped. We can't have anyone get hurt. We really need to look after the place. But you can see, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. You can see the decline. You can see why this happens. You know, when people, this guy, this dad, uh, this is a very uh, ritzy, expensive school, okay? So everyone there is, they're, they're quite wealthy already. But he was like, hey, my daughter got hit in the eye buy a tennis ball, I could probably get some cash out of this. I think that's as far as it goes. The kid didn't have to go to hospital or anything serious. It was nothing. It was just like a bruised eye. But this is going on right now. And, I mean, the stories are massive. There was a kid, a six-year-old kid in the States who got arrested, and, but they couldn't do anything with it. Luckily, it didn't go anywhere, but arrested for sexual harassment because he was playing tag and touched another guy's bottle. Like a six-year-old. You know, like... You can see, it just spirals out of control massively. The truth is, though, that all of these things paint a picture for us which we really like accepting a lot of the time, and that is that we deserve something. We then repeat it to each other, funnily enough. We do this. We tell each other, that's not fair. You don't deserve that. You deserve better than that. We think that we're helping each other by saying stuff like this. You deserve better than be, to be treated like that. But 1 Corinthians 6.4 paints a different picture. I don't know if you've read this verse before. When I first read it, I was, it was interesting. <laughs> so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather, uh, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That was a really uh, convicting verse for me, actually. Particularly the, the bit in the middle that says, to have lawsuits with, uh, at all with one another is already defeat. The fact that you would even be going up against each other already is already a defeat. Why is that a defeat? It's a defeat because we're meant to love each other, not go after what we can get from each other. So where am I going with this? Obviously, Sondi read um, that <coughs> verse before from Matthew 18, and he read the entire parable after it, which is about forgiveness. The sermon series is Christ Crosses Culture, and I think that this is probably one of the largest and most con- controversial crossings that Jesus made against culture, and even more so in today's culture, which is all about getting as much as we can for ourselves. So there's the verse again, Matthew 18, 21 to 22. When Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you can kind of see just, I don't know, you can kind of think, this the way that this is written, it's like Peter thinks he's got it right here. Seven times, that's going to be a lot. If someone does the same thing to me over and over again and I forgive them seven times, that's massive. Surely that's enough. And Jesus says, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I'm not good at math. What is that? 490? Man, no one knows. <laughs> 490 times, right? That's a lot. Now, if you can remember and if you're keeping a tally of 490 times, you're probably actually not forgiving them that entire time anyway if you're keeping a tally. So really what Jesus is saying is there's no limit. You just keep doing it. You just keep forgiving. And the disciples probably shouldn't have been all that surprised by this because really Jesus was all about this. This idea is contained within the much more well-known concept, love your neighbour as yourself. All of the commandments of the Old Testament got put into two commandments, love God and love everybody else. If you do that, you're doing the right thing. Loving your neighbour as yourself is all about forgiveness. Can we really love someone the way that we would want to be loved and not forgive them? Now, I just want to make it clear, I'm not saying that we don't have certain rights. Don't mishear me. What I am saying, however, is that we need to define the word really, really carefully to make sure that it fits within a biblical worldview. Our rights, if we do have any at all, come from God. And there are some pretty intense scriptures that we need to consider when forming our opinion on what our rights really are. For instance, Romans 9.20. But who, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the, the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What's getting said there is that God has the right over us. He made us. We do not come to God and say, I have a right to this, God, and you will give it to me. That doesn't exist. As intense as it is, it is actually a really helpful thing for us to be put in our place sometimes, to realise where we really fit in the whole scheme of things. God loves us. He loves us like sons and daughters. But we don't have a right to come up to him and demand things from him. See, our problem is perspective. What right do we really have? We didn't create ourselves. We don't own ourselves. We ultimately, when we really think about it and admit it, we have very little control over our lives at all. In our fallen condition, we default to thinking ourselves much higher than we really ought. It's difficult for us not to see humanity as the highest and most important thing, particularly our own individual humanity. But in reality, 
we fit into a much larger, greater, more exciting and more fulfilling story, not as the main character, but as an extra. We are extras with bit parts in God's story. However, when he looks at us, he sees more than just an extra. He sees a son or a daughter. The cultural concept of right says, I'm the main character and I deserve better. The biblical concept of right says, I deserve nothing good, but God gives me good things anyway. And God has given us good things. He's given us more than we understand by taking away more than we understand. The last two weeks when we've been talking about sin, hopefully it has been a real encouragement for you to get a much bigger idea about just how huge sin is. He's forgiven us and he wants us to do the same for other people. He wants us to forgive. See, the truth is that we've offended God. Hopefully Pete's messages the last few weeks have helped you to see and understand sin in a really new way. Hopefully we can begin to see that it's much more than just breaking a little rule, but that we're actually tearing the fabric of creation, completely messing with the way that things were supposed to be, the way that God intended. We have hurt and offended God greatly, more than we can possibly understand, and he has forgiven it. He has taken it upon himself and given us clean clothes to wear. And he's not just done that, but then he's adopted us into his family. We hated and killed him, and he calls us his children. See, we are free to forgive other people, and we are expected to forgive other people, because that's what God did for us. And as we understand the concept more, I believe that forgiveness will flow from us more freely than it has ever before. I think that we struggle with forgiveness because we don't really understand just how much God's forgiven us. We have a much higher view of ourselves than we should. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. We believe that God forgives us our sins, but also that he will not do so unless we forgive other people their sins against us. There is no doubt about the second part of this statement. It is in the Lord's Prayer and it was emphatically stated by our Lord. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. No exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided that they are not too frightful or provided that they're extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. <clears throat> it seems a little bit intense to me, <laughs> you know. I mean, what, what it sounds like Lewis is saying is that there's this unforgivable sin a sin that God will not look past, that Jesus' death will not atone for, and that is unforgiveness towards other people. But I don't think that that's the best way to look at it. Unforgiveness in itself is not a standalone issue. It's symptom. It is a symptom of something much greater, and that's pride. Pride is seeing ourselves better or higher than other people. It's thinking about ourselves as independent selves. It's becoming obsessed with our, with our identity, above the identity that we find in Christ. Jesus wants us to lose ourselves, to die to ourselves, but by taking up our cross, by losing our life, we actually gain it. Unforgiveness is holding on to ourselves, the lack of desire to lose ourselves, because we care more about ourselves than we care about other people. We would prefer to, to remember and hold on to the fact that we have been wronged rather than release the person of the wrong. We don't want to forgive because we think they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. But did we deserve it? Did we earn it? Jesus came to us before we had done anything. And the truth is we can't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Why do we expect that of other people? 
This, however, is obviously one of those many times in which worldly wisdom is outdone by the perceived, by the world it's perceived to be foolishness of God. Worldly wisdom would state, get what you can, you've been wronged, you have rights, get your own back, get revenge. But godly foolishness, although we know that it's wisdom, would state, forgive. Just let go and forgive. And like everything else, when we live inside of God's wisdom, the natural continuation is actually better for us. It may be hard, but it is better for us to forgive. This is another of those examples where we trade long-term gain for short-term pain. It's difficult in the short term to forgive, and that short term might actually be years, not just days. But in the long term, decades, and then obviously into eternity, the gain is so much greater. The flip side of this is that getting revenge, getting our own back, is certainly short-term gain. It makes us feel better, makes us feel vindicated, but in the end, it doesn't solve anything. Unforgiveness leads to bitter resentment. Nelson Mandela said that resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. You know, It just kills us. It kills us inside. They don't even know what's going on. Maybe you've been in a situation before where someone's done something to you and you just hate them for it. You can't believe that they've done it. And you get bitter and you get twisted about it. And every time you see them walking around, they're just walking around free. They don't mind what's going on. You've never even told them that you feel this way. So it doesn't even affect them. But we want it to affect them somehow, but really it's just killing us on the inside. Holding on to it is just destroying us. Once again, this is one of those instances where perspective comes into play. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's an understanding of what Jesus has done for us which leads us to be able to forgive other people. It's an understanding of our right standing in the world that frees us to be humble, to care about other people more than we care about ourselves. We throw around these lines a lot, love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, strength, mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. I've been thinking for a while and I've been talking to my community group about this, the high school kids, this, this idea. I think that it's easy to say that we love God and even to think it, believe it, and honestly try to love God. But sometimes it's a lot harder to love other people. Because other people are always there. They're always present. They're everywhere. And then we can begin to wonder, if we have not love for other people, how much do we really love God? Is it possible to obey the first part of that and not the second part? Is it possible to obey the second and not the first? The two great commandments are love God and love everyone else. Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Where is our love for other people? Where's our revelation of what God has done for us? So then what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is required when someone else has done wrong to you. It is taking, it is taking the pain and the suffering and the hurt and absorbing it. Taking it all and not asking for anything back. Not asking for revenge or even for restitution. Remember, that's what Jesus did for us. Our sins did not merely disappear, as Sondi said last week but they appeared on the body of Christ. Our pain, suffering and hurt was transferred. We sinned against God and we continue to sin against God and he continues to forgive us. Not merely by forgetting, he can't do that, but by transferring the pain onto himself and onto his son. When we forgive someone else, we are taking the pain, absorbing the pain that they have given us 
and not and choosing not to repay it, choosing not to give it to somebody else. It's important to realize this. Forgiveness hurts. Suffering has already been given to us, and instead of trying to give it to someone else or back to the person that gave it to us, we just take it. It's going to hurt. We can see this in the really basic example of someone wasting our time. Just think about, I'm sure there's been plenty of times where this has happened, you're meeting up with someone and they're late, maybe 15 minutes late, and you're just sitting there for 15 minutes thinking, man, I can't believe how late this person is. They're just wasting my time. I could be doing so much better things. I was meeting up with this person to help them, and now they're making me wait for them 15 minutes. Forgiving them is about absorbing that pain of wasted time and not repaying them at all in any way. Isn't that just the immediate reaction sometimes? Oh, they may be 15 minutes late, so I'll go 15 minutes later and I'll make sure I take up 15 minutes of their time so that they know what it was like for me. Or I'll just remember that and then next time I'll be 15 minutes late because obviously we're not being punctual, so that's not really a big deal. I'll be 15 minutes late as well. Forgiving them is absorbing that pain and not paying them back at all in any way. Notice I didn't just say not paying them back in kind because forgiveness is not if when our friend arrives we tell them it's okay but then we proceed to talk to them for five minutes about how injured we are. That's not forgiveness. We're still transferring our pain back to them because they have to listen to us whinge which is probably more painful than just sitting around and not doing anything. Jesus doesn't say to us, yeah, you're forgiven but let's just run over everything you did to me a few times, right? Just so you realise what a big deal this is that I've done for you. He doesn't do that. It's forgiven. It's over. There's a great scene in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe where Edmund comes back after he's been rescued by Aslan and everybody's there and they kind of go up to talk to him but Aslan says, what's done is done. There's no need to speak with Edmund about his past because it's been settled. It's over. The other side of this example, the, the wasting time example to remember, is it's to, to remember we have a really warped sort of idea about ownership anyway. We think, my time's been wasted. Whose time? Did we create time? How, how, how do we... Because we talk about this all the time, my time. Oh, you're wasting my time. You know, but we didn't create time. We have no right to claim time as being our eyes, ours. It's not our time that's been wasted, it's God's. And when you realise that, it's probably not wasted. If we receive from it a chance to forgive our friend to think of them and what problems they may be facing. Why are they late? Maybe there's a good reason that they're late. Maybe they're facing hardships in their life. Maybe this is a great time to pray for them. All of a sudden, our wasted time has turned into God's timing. Mark Twain said, Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that crushed it. That sounds like a great poetic way to say that forgiving someone brings life. Forgiving people, it just brings life to them. It brings life to yourself. It brings life to everybody else. That's what Jesus did for us. He brought us life. And the flip side of this is that unforgiveness brings death. Another side of forgiveness which we seem to forget is that forgiveness is for all things, all people. Sometimes it's really easy for us to forgive the really big public humiliations, the public hurts, because usually if we're humiliated in public, we, we get a chance to forgive in public, and so that makes us look pretty good. But really, when it comes down to it, if we're forgiving someone because it's going to make us look good, then it's a selfish reason to forgive, and it's probably not genuine in the first place. Lewis once again reminds us that this is not the case. This is hard. 
It's perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. God has forgiven us more than we understand. He has taken sin, our sin, upon himself, and he has given us his righteousness in its place. The parable that, that Pete read this morning is probably one of the most stark examples that we can see this in. Right at the end of that, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In that parable, the first guy was forgiven thousands of dollars. He was just forgiven it outright. It's fine. And then he went and argued over a couple of dollars with the next guy. That's the level that we're at. We argue with each other over a couple of dollars and Jesus has forgiven us more money than we could possibly even understand in monetary terms. That's where we're at. And the more that we get a hold of that and understand that, the more that we will be free to forgive each other readily. We still have to pay our debt if we do not forgive the debt of other people. The key to this parable is to realise that we have all been forgiven a tremendous debt one larger than we could ever possibly pay. When we truly see ourselves as less important than other people, when we really do love others as Christ has loved us, then we'll be able to forgive. In doing a bit of research for this sermon, um, I came across this quote that was everywhere. If you Google forgiveness and go to images, you'll see a whole bunch of images that are just like some pretty border or whatever and then these words in there. The quote is this, Forgiveness is not something we do for others, We do it for ourselves, to get well and move forward. Now, this sounds pretty nice to start with. However, when we have a biblical view of what forgiveness is, we can see it doesn't really make sense. It's not what forgiveness is. Jesus didn't forgive us so that he could move forward and get well. He was really well before he came down and became unwell for us. Okay, He didn't do it because he was really struggling and he just needed to get on with it. He forgave us because he loves us. Likewise, any forgiveness that we think that we extend to other people that is really based upon our own desire to move forward, it's not true forgiveness. We have selfishly realised that holding on to the pain is killing us and so we try to let go in order to move forward. But it's still rooted in pride. It's still actually rooted in caring more about ourselves than the other person. It is, of course, true that forgiving people helps us to move forward because God's ways do end up being better for us. But if that's our motivation it's unlikely that real forgiveness will ever really be achieved. This is a, I mean, the whole forgiveness thing is a really difficult concept, I think, for us to get, a, to get a hold of. And it's probably because we've all been in situations where we've forgiven someone and then afterwards we've been like, that, that, that doesn't, I, nothing feels better. That hasn't made anything better. Uh, I don't understand. Surely that was meant to fix everything. If I've forgiven that, if I've said I've forgiven them, that should have fixed everything. And then we start to get these warped ideas about what forgiveness really is because it hasn't worked for us the way we wanted it to work, so we start making up things. For that reason, I think um, there's a really great clip on YouTube from Mark Driscoll 
called 10 Things Forgiveness Isn't. And I'd encourage you to look, at, look it up and have a bit of a look at it. He'll spend a bit more time with it than I am this morning. But I do want to go through the list because it's a really helpful list to see. Because the truth is that in a group this size, there's probably people that have had really terrible things happen to them. You know, you, there may be people in here that haven't forgiven something that happened 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And that might be because it's a huge deal. And I'm not in any way trying to make light of it. Not at all. But for this reason, it is important that we understand what forgiveness is and what it's not. So here's 10 things that forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not approving or diminishing sin. Forgiveness is not saying someone, that's not sin. That's fine. You can keep doing that. You know, sin is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's probably the biggest deal that there is. Jesus had to die for it. It's a massive deal. So let's not cheapen what Jesus did for us by telling someone it's fine. That's not sin. You don't have to, you don't have to say sorry for that. That's not what forgiveness is. Number two, forgiveness is not enabling sin. It's not just going along with someone who is sinning, not stopping or trying to help them to stop. Sometimes forgiveness can actually include confronting and rebuking someone. That's okay, you can do that and still forgive someone at the same time. That happens, the example that Driscoll uses, it happens a lot of the time with wives and husbands when a wife is trying to be submissive and so the husband might be sinning and the wife says, doesn't do anything about it because they're trying to be submissive. And really what they do is they just start enabling that sin to continue and to continue. You can forgive someone and you can confront them. Number three, Forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. It's not pretending that something never happened. I think that we get that a lot, you know. People say that. It never happened. Just, just pretend it never happened and it'll be fine. Number four, forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. I'll forgive them as soon as they come and say that they're sorry. Jesus came to us before we said that we were sorry. He died for us before we asked him to. In fact, we probably wouldn't have asked him to because we were so rebellious. So it's not forgiveness to come up to to say, I'm really willing to forgive that person. I just want them to come and say sorry first. Okay? Because the truth is, some people are never going to say sorry. And you need to forgive them anyway. Number five, forgiveness is not forgetting. Those two things go together, you know, forgive and forget. And some people will say that that's what God does because of the verse that Pete talked about. But Pete said it last week. He said God doesn't forget because he can't forget. What he does is he chooses not to associate us with that sin. He removes that from us. But forgiveness is not forgetting. It's impossible actually for us to choose what we remember and what we forget. You might have tried a bunch of times. To, to try and remember something and then you're like, I totally forgot about that. And there's probably other things that you wish you could forget that you just can't. So don't expect that when you've forgiven someone that you're just going to forget about it. And don't think that you haven't forgiven someone just because you remember it. It's not the way it works. Number six, forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain. Just because it still hurts doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven someone. And the weird thing is that we see this so obviously in physical injuries, you know. If someone came up and just broke my arm and I forgave them, my arm wouldn't just be unbroken all of a sudden. It would still hurt a lot. It would take the usual amount of time to heal. But for some reason we expect that this is going to happen emotionally. That when we sin against someone or we hurt someone and they forgive us, that that should stop the pain. 
And sometimes we want that for ourselves. We think if I forgive that other person, then my pain, my emotional pain should stop. But that's not the way that it works. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. Sometimes you need to keep forgiving someone over and over and over again. It doesn't mean that you didn't forgive them the first time. But sometimes, Driscoll gives this example of a a couple who um, the man had an affair, the husband had an affair, they came back together, they, they reconciled through the whole thing, they, they stayed together. But every now and then, years and years later, every now and then, when the wife saw the man talking to another woman, everything just came flooding back all of a sudden and she found herself having to forgive him again. That doesn't mean that she didn't forgive him the first time. It just means that emotionally it came back and forgiveness needed to be repeated. The other reason that forgiveness isn't a one-time event is because sometimes people keep doing the same thing to you over and over and over again. Okay? If your kid keeps bugging you and you forgive them once and then they come back and do it again, you just, it's not like, oh, I forgave them, that's fine, I can do whatever I want, I can punish them now or I can do whatever I want. You forgive them over and over and over again. Number eight, forgiveness is not neglecting justice. Obviously earlier I was talking about rights and about suing people, but I, I didn't mean to imply that we should not pursue justice. God is a God of justice. A murderer can be forgiven and still be arrested. In fact... Forgiveness doesn't mean repentance, so probably he should be arrested, yeah? Because he's a murderer and he might do it again. So, just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek justice for the situation. Number nine, forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean that you're going to be able to trust them again. You might never be able to trust them again. They're two separate things. Trust takes a long time to get back after it's been destroyed. And just because we've forgiven someone does, that, does not then give them the right to come back up and say, why don't you trust me? I thought you forgave me. They're two different things. And lastly, forgiveness is not reconciliation. One person repents, one person forgives, but both people need to reconcile. And you can forgive someone and not be all buddy-buddy friends again and back to normal. You can, that can actually happen because... The other person might not want to reconcile. There's nothing you can do about that. As long as you've done what you can, that's okay. So don't feel as though you haven't forgiven someone just because you're not friends again. Now, lastly, two additional problems with forgiveness. First of all, this idea of not being able to forgive ourselves is a really important one. I know that this can happen a lot for people, that you can make a mistake, we can make a mistake, and we just can't get past it ourselves. Once again, this is a perspective thing. When we understand what Christ has done for us, we can start to understand that forgiving ourselves needs to happen. Lewis says, I think that if God forgives us, then we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. We think that we are a higher law than him. He's forgiven us. And at the end of the day, he's the one we've offended much more than anybody else. And if he's forgiven us, we should be able to forgive ourselves. That's not saying that that's going to be an easy thing. Not at all. Number two. Somebody and I had this really interesting discussion with uh, my PC group, so with the grade 12 boys here at school recently, about what to do when you realise that you've hurt someone. And we got some interesting answers, we got some pretty good answers, but pretty much the answers were say sorry and ask for forgiveness. Um, First of all, I would say that's kind of an easy thing to do saying sorry, asking for forgiveness. That's really easy. In fact, in Christianity, a lot of the time, because this word forgiveness gets thrown around, 
what can actually happen is it just throws all of the attention back on them. We say, can you forgive me? And then what happens? Well, if they want to be a good Christian, they feel as though they have to forgive you, but they don't really want to necessarily because it seems like you're not really that apologetic anyway or maybe they're not ready to forgive or whatever. So the real interesting thing is that asking someone to forgive you, it's not like this get-out-of-jail-free card if you've done something wrong to someone. And you shouldn't try to use it like that. You shouldn't try to guilt someone into forgiving you just because they know that they have to. It puts the Christian pressure on them. I've done my bit. I've said sorry. It's up to you now. It's up to them. The uh, biblical example is actually something called restitution, which is paying them back what you took from them and then giving them extra on top of that as well. And that, even then, that is not going to be this guarantee that everything's okay, right? But it's trying to take the pain that you gave them and putting that pain back on yourself again, okay? So, for instance, if you're waiting for someone and, or, or I'm meeting up with someone and I'm 15 minutes late, I want to make it up to them. I want to make up that 15 minutes to them. Even though they're not asking, I want to make it up to them and then I want to give them something extra as well. Can you imagine if everybody did that for each other? If you wronged someone and then that's what you did or if someone wronged you and that's what they did? Man, uh, forgiveness would be a lot easier as well. The core of this issue though, this issue about forgiveness, it's about humility and loving other people. We are called to love God and to love other people. We are able to love people and forgive them and seek justice all at the same time, but forgiveness is a massive element to it. Forgiveness is really hard. If you've ever been wronged in a really serious way, you will know this for a fact. If you've been attacked or abused, if someone has seriously betrayed your trust, then forgiveness won't come easy. God's forgiveness for all of us came at a huge cost. Forgiveness does not remove pain. It sometimes does, but not always, and very rarely instantaneously. Like all hard things, it's better not to do it alone. If you struggle with unforgiveness, I do not mean at all to cheapen what has been done to you. I do say, though, that it is better to work through it than to hold on to it in silence. The resentment that grows is like poison. Jesus wants us to have life and he wants us to forgive people. I would really encourage you, if you are thinking right now about unforgiveness in your life, about someone that you haven't been able to forgive or someone that you think that you need to forgive, to try to work through that, to try to get to that place where you can and not to necessarily think that you can do it by yourself. If you go to community group, talk to your community group leader. If you've got a mentor or a good Christian friend that you talk to about stuff, talk to them about it. Try to get to that place because you will know if you've ever held on to something up for a long time that it can just make you bitter and twisted on the inside. You stop trusting people. You stop wanting to hang out with people. It can destroy you. And not only that, but like I said, God's pretty clear about what unforgiveness, what the repercussions are. The big challenge is to realise that Jesus has forgiven us in tremendous ways and that then we are called to do that for other people. And some of, for some of you, that might be really, really, really difficult. But like I said, make sure you do it. Don't leave not doing it. Don't just put it aside.